Hello, friends, and welcome to uh, another episode of Class Unity Transmissions. In this episode, uh, we are, I think, going to be touching on some difficult material. Uh, we're touching, of course, on the subject of the October 7th attacks that took place in Israel. Um, groups of fighters coming out of Gaza, um, engaged in what can only be described as a terrifying campaign of violence uh, through Israel um, on that day. And the region has been experiencing ructions uh, ever since. I'm joined in this conversation by uh, Class Unity members Jamal from Chicago and Mamad from Brooklyn. How are you, gentlemen? Pretty good. Uh, very good. I wanted to have you both on specifically because myself, I'm not as much of an expert on this area as I would wish to be. And I think it would take me a very long time to to become sufficiently educated to to really have solid opinions on this topic. Um, and I think I probably speak for most people listening, if not the majority of Class Unity members, in expressing that it, it's very hard to know what the left position should be on this topic as we see such destruction rain down on Gaza in the last few days. The ground invasion starting yesterday, we're recording this on October 29th. Um, I want to get to the politics of it later in the conversation, but just to get us started today, can I ask you both just for a quick account of what happened on October 7th and, and what it represents in your opinions? Jamal, would you like to go first? Sure. So um, what happened on October 7th starts a little bit before October 7th. Um, the current Israeli coalition <clears throat> government uh, contains a heavy admixture of settler parties um, representing the, the interests of settlers in the West Bank. Um, and in order to placate them, Netanyahu moved most of the Israeli defense forces, the IDF, into the West Bank, basically to... Um, protect the settlements and forestall any sort of West Bank uprising against them. This gave Hamas, which runs the Gaza Strip, um, the opportunity to surge across the wall separating Gaza from southern Israel and basically rampage through the Israeli hinterland um, for a couple days, um, killing people, soldiers and civilians alike, um, taking captives. Um, the Israeli army was obviously caught very flat-footed, and they had a considerable degree of difficulty um, mobilizing in a timely fashion, in an mm -hmm. effective fashion. Um, Hamas, after a couple of days, went back into Gaza with, um, it seems like, several hundred hostages, and um, have been hiding out in their tunnels um and there's apparently a, a massive tunnel network under the gaza strip mm -hmm. um fully stocked with weapons supplies where they've been keeping the hostages um since that point the israelis have embarked on a campaign of um indiscriminate is is perhaps too kind of a word of but of indiscriminate bombing of the gaza strip um uh, civilian targets overwhelmingly. Um, mm -hmm. And there have been um, various attempts by the Israelis to 
direct the civilian population of Gaza from this part of, of the Strip to the to the next part of the Strip, but it doesn't actually appear to, to matter in terms of who they're targeting. Um, and they've been blocking off food, electricity, gas. Um, they've shut down the internet recently. They've shut down the electricity grid entirely. Um, a humanitarian catastrophe is underway in Gaza. Um, and what happens next uh, is anyone's guess, but but I think that would be my my brief summary of what's happened so far. Mamad, I think Jamal perfectly described everything in terms of what happened. I don't I don't I don't think I have anything else to add uh, besides just that. Um, one thing, it's also important the context of the geopolitics of the situation is also i think is Please. yeah that's a good thing to very talk about. important and you know like the, the well that's also one part of it the other part of the geopolitical situation is also the media like war and the fog of war that is happening and how uh, you know all the sides are trying to portray this on their side obviously what I, all sides i mean the israeli side and and then you know for but from what what we gather is that um hamas they're kind of linked to iran uh for the most part the media because they do have i guess some iranian support they, 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 yeah they're just it seems like the media went so crazy right now is just as without any like a evidence or they're just throwing all this accusation at you know different countries and different you know even accusation of obviously the fake news and stuff like that um but we don't really know who exactly backed hamas from from what i gather we know that it financially was is support is supported by Qatar and turkey and it was trained i guess by the iranian government at one point but I don't know if there's any direct link to what's going on now or any of the asset that was uh yeah you know, that was released uh not asset I'm sorry um, that were like blocking Oh the right these were the fund these were the Iranian funds that were held in escrow in South Korea um uh, in, when the um the US uh nuclear deal under the Obama administration fell apart yeah yeah anyway so i was saying like the fund that was released you know they sort of linked that to the funding for hamas but that's not really there's no evidence there's no evidence of that, of that. that's fair enough. yeah, yeah okay. so there there is on the other hand there is evidence that um the israeli government has historically funded hamas and of course in fact, there yeah. was a famous quote from benjamin netanyahu i think from 2019 right. um uh, admitting as much saying that um, it was the policy of his government to fund Hamas in order to divide the Palestinians politically uh, among themselves. So, yeah, the question of where Hamas gets its money uh, is an interesting one. But like like most Middle Eastern conflicts, it turns out that everyone is funding everyone. Um, like uh, back back during the Syrian civil war, the U.S. was famously funding both the pro-ISIS and anti-ISIS um, terrorist organizations. So exactly right. that's exactly the great point everybody is funding everyone you know we don't really know right <laughs> yeah yeah Rand. okay so um I, I, this is going to be a next question is maybe a little bit tricky 
because again, I'm going to try to encourage you both to hold off on um, speaking directly to the question of um, you know what the left ought to think about all of this for just a little while. But but the next question I think is going to be linked to that inevitably, and it's specifically this because you know I, I know very well from listening to a lot of left commentary over the last two weeks and following certain Twitter accounts that there is um there's a very sort of and, and I think it's it's somewhat justified position um that Hamas uh are uh, essentially theocratic militants um something close to ISIS in terms of their uh, ideology and creed um they supposedly give their fighters drugs before sending them into the battle. I mean, I don't know how you fly a paraglider on drugs, but one of the things that gets invoked when when this topic comes up is that the leadership of Hamas all live in Qatar and, you know, that they're very privileged sort of um, intellectual, uh, maybe bourgeois subjects, um, very disconnected from the real people of Palestine. Can we just maybe stop to visit the question, however, of who the actual fighters of Hamas are? Who are the people on the ground? Who are the people who actually pulled off this operation? What is their ideological orientation? To what extent is is Hamas this kind of unified, monolithic, theocratic um, 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 party or group? Um, and, And to what extent has it is that oh, perhaps maybe oversimplifying its motivations? Right. So um, first thing to understand about Hamas is that it has two distinct wings. It has a political wing and it has a military wing. The political wing uh, does indeed, at least the higher ups, mostly live abroad in Qatar, formerly in Turkey, um, in perhaps in various other countries as well. Many of them may well be wealthy. May, many of them may well be quite corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the political wing, from all that we understand, from all the reporting, not just from the mainstream media, but also from sort of specialists, um, was not kept abreast of this uh, operation. Um, and it was not even aware of this operation until probably immediately before, um, you know, the, the fighters went across the, the border wall. Um, and the strongest evidence to this is that the Israelis weren't aware of it either, right? Mm-hmm. And presumably, if there had been communications from Gaza to Qatar, those communications would have been intercepted at some point and, and word of the operation would have gotten out. Um, as far as we can tell, word of the operation got out maybe a week before to the Egyptians, um, probably via via chatter from Gaza directly, um, so not from the political wing. So okay. it, it seems like the political wing was sidelined. This was the military wing's sort of operation. Um, now, in terms of who the military wing of Hamas are, these are... I think it's fair to say local Gazans who have probably never left the Strip in their life, um, many of whom are war orphans whose parents have been killed in, in previous, uh, you know, uh, Israeli actions. Um, and a- another point that I think people are not aware of is that the Gaza Strip is incredibly, you could say, overeducated in a sense. Unemployment is almost total. I think well over half the population is unemployed, you know, and that's even prior to the latest round of fighting where, you know, what what little remained of the economy is totally collapsed. But 
um, the the population is is quite educated. It has a very high rate of you know college degree uh, and, and college attendance, um, and I think that that what you're looking at with Hamas's rank and file is overeducated, underemployed young men who are living in a concentration camp have a lot of time on their hands to build tunnels and devise you know military operations. Uh, I, I don't think that these are uh, sort of theocrats um, in in the ISIS mold or, or the Iranian mold, um, okay. though obviously Hamas is inspired. Hamas is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Um, and it was inspired by the Iranian Revolution of seventy eight, seventy nine. Obviously, that that's sort of where it gets its 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 original inspiration. But I've seen no indication that Hamas is anything like an ISIS or Taliban style uh, fundamentalist organization. Um, they say in their own charter, for example, that their struggle is not against all Jews. It's against Zionists who speak in the name of, of Judaism, right? So that's right. the kind of nuance that you're not going to find in ISIS's state, statements or the Taliban statements, right? Um, and it's also, you know, as, as uh, Mahmoud was mentioning earlier, it's sort of backed up by the fact that the Marxist-Leninist wing of the Palestinian liberation movement, which is represented by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, is relatively closely allied to Hamas, and this is for for those unaware, the Marxist, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine is sort of the. It's not quite accurate to call it the Christian wing of Palestinian militantism, but that's kind of de facto what it is. It's disproportionately Christian in terms of its membership and makeup. So, mm-hmm. they don't seem to view Hamas as as kind of. Um, ISIS. As as radical <laughs> yeah. ISIS style yeah. theocrats, yeah. so yeah. I think it's I think it's a little bit silly for American leftists who don't speak or read Arabic to kind of be saying this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Hamas is a uh, a militant uh, movement that uses terrorist tactics um, that probably would not be kind of the ideal government if you had to pick one to live under, but. That is the game in town in terms of resistance, and it's sort of that's who people join, and that's who people, you know, sort of rally around when this kind of stuff happens. But it, it's not; um, these are not sort of um, th- it's not ISIS. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I I, um, I appreciate that answer, uh, Mamad. Anything to to add to that on the kind of constitution of Hamas? Well, I mean, besides the constitution, I think everything that, that needs to be said was said here um in terms of the uh, the leftist view of it maybe it's too early to talk about but it's also important to note first and foremost there's few facts on the ground that we have to also consider here that we don't really have a state of palestine like palestinian don't really have a state and it's really difficult for i guess westerners to understand this they're Hmm. being occupied like really they're being occupied so even if they have they do have like an opposition a sort of parliament uh in a way um which uh all these different parties are working together but it's it's it, they are literally like the west bank gaza is a concentration camp and west bank is obviously being occupied by israel and and one thing also the leftists in the West don't realize this is like a lot of the Gazans, I think Jamal said this, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I hear this, but a lot of the Gazans are originally not from that 
Gaza. They're actually from the where what is Israel today, you know, like from uh, Jaffa, from uh, like all those cities. And Gaza was actually a refugee camp. That was because there was a lot of the refugee camps on that one corner of the map. They just turned it into, you know, like so. And then, and then the other thing is, there's a lot of refugee camps still to this day all over uh, uh, right. Israel yeah. and Palestine. You know, I'll refer to Israel and Palestine in this podcast. So, so there's a lot of refugee camps in Palestine. There's a number of them in Jordan. And I think there's like few in the middle of Syria. So this is the situation, and these and and uh, I, I I don't know. Should I talk about the liberation movements a little bit? I think we're like going to get it. I think we can get into that maybe a little bit uh, later when we get into to history. But uh, I, I'm certainly not trying to limit yeah. what what you say and when. But uh, I do want to. I think for the listeners, it'll be maybe more beneficial to kind of maybe work our way back towards the historical um, yeah, as we so, go. So. So th- those mm-hmm. things are important facts on the ground for you to understand why yeah. Hamas is, why you even need a military wing. Because all the other options has been tried for seven years, right? All the reformists, all the, you know, like labor, you know, all the other bullshit stuff. And Israel did not want to listen to any of them and they didn't really... Like did nothing to them, right? Right. Um, I don't want to go back into the history of Arafat as we spoke about that, but it's um, you know the other option is left is this. So if you if even Hamas was a Marxist communist, you know, party as you liked it to be, a lot of the Westerners I'm talking to you, yeah, <laughs> um, they still would have done the same thing, right? Right. right. Because they've done the same thing in Algeria, they've done the same thing in you know the whatever all the global national liberation movement in Vietnam. I mean, you name it. So that's that's an important fact for the Westerners to understand about what's right. going on. Right, and and to to sort of um, piggyback on that point, like um, in fact, Hamas tried a peaceful protest back in 2018, 2019. It was not really covered in the Western media, so most people don't know about it. But um, Hamas apparently took to heart the criticisms that peaceful protests would actually get results in a way that um, that that violence and terrorism wouldn't. And so in 2018, 2019, they organized uh, what was called the uh, Great March of Return right. um, in Gaza, where basically Palestinian civilians marched peacefully on the border wall, um, they they were indiscriminately shot by the Israeli army. There's the famous uh, footage of of a man in a wheelchair being shot and killed by the Israeli army. So, um, anyone who's sort of whining at this juncture that Hamas uh, is a terrorist organization and they should try peaceful protesting, they they tried it and it didn't work, and the Israelis killed them, and the Israelis didn't care, and the rest of the world didn't care either. Um, and and so clearly we don't have to like Hamas's tactics and we shouldn't approve of, uh, you know, the 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 killing of civilians um, all the same. This is a national liberation struggle and national liberation struggles have always involved terrorist tactics, um, including 
the national liberation struggle, if you want to call it that, that founded the state of Israel, which famously had various terrorist organizations like the Irgun that attacked Mm -hmm. um, British and and Palestinian Arab civilian targets. So, um, you know, setting aside the question of, oh, do we approve? Do we not approve? Who cares? You know, no one cares if we in the West approve or or disapprove of these tactics. Um, the, the, The issue, the facts are simply that peaceful protests didn't work. Um, it didn't work mm. to improve the standard of living of the Palestinian people. It remains to be seen whether this sort of the violent tactics that Hamas uh, is currently engaged in will uh, result in better results. But um, at the very least, it's put the issue back on the world's agenda in a way that it wasn't yeah. for the last however many decades. Right. So um, and and I think it's important when when leftists are discussing you know, the, the conflict in Israel-Palestine, to try to get past this sort of moral uh, dilemma or, or sort of this moralist argumentation that that everyone is doing on Twitter and the mainstream media, et cetera, where you try to adjudicate, oh, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, whose war crimes are worse, whose war crimes are justified, whose are not, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not, that's, that's a fantasy sort of fake politics. Like, right. this is a national liberation struggle People are going to commit heinous acts over the course of it. it. It's not. It doesn't matter if anyone outside of Israel Palestine approves or disapproves, except insofar as it influences the political realities on the ground there. And your individual moral approval as an individual leftist in the United States has no bearing on that, unless right. you're you're engaged in some sort of pressure campaign against your government to do this or that. Right. So. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to to sort of try to to establish sort of uh, how the left should be viewing this. This is a this is a political conflict. It's not some sort of moral question where it matters which way you fall. So there's a nice uh, sort of modicum of realism in your approach, I think, and um, in a sense, you're 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 trying to identify, I think. You know, not so much who the good guys or bad guys are, but like the understandable pressures. There was a, an interesting uh, tweet uh, on that note that I think came from Trita Parsi, and I'll just read it if it may, if I may. Um, no, this was not the biggest intelligence failure by Israel, right? Because we'd all been talking about the intelligence failure that morning. Uh, the biggest intel failure is to believe that it can live in peace while permanently occupying another people. This is not to justify violence, but to recognize that peace and occupation never tend to coexist in the long run. And I think, you know, for me personally, that's been a, a kind of a guiding um, argument uh, to to thinking about all of this. Um, you know, and, and a question that's on my mind lately, and uh, if you'll indulge me, I'll just sort of um, put it out there that I, you know, I, I, I myself as a sort of a Marxist uh I, our scholar, you know, I've come late to Marxism in my life somewhat. I'm, I'm 48 years old. I, I've always read Marx. I've always been kind of interested in Marxism, I suppose. But, you know, to actually sort of think pragmatically and politically about what it means to be a Marxist is something that just I came to it later in life, starting really in 2016, like so many people. You know, I, I think I stopped being purely an academic or aspiring just to have an academic career um academic theorist and started to you know think concretely about questions of socialist strategy and in that journey i came into contact with some people who i think you know really 
really changed my mind. And it, again, if you'll indulge me, I, I might I might actually just mention some names here, and you don't have to associate yourselves with this if you don't wish. But um, you know, I, uh, thinking about environmental issues, people like Lee Phillips were were fundamental to me. I think you know, changing my mind on uh, the question of growth. Alex Hockley, Philip Conliffe of the Bunga podcast were instrumental in helping me to think through questions of populism and, uh, as they put it, the end of the end of history. Uh, people like Chris Catrone, very helpful for me in terms of thinking through what actually it means to be a Marxist in a political sense. It's just been so difficult in the last couple of weeks because, you know, I, I've, I've found myself in positions of strong disagreement with um with 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 these uh figures these very sort of informative figures for me and i keep just coming back to this question of um you know what what it means to um to think to try to be objective about about this conflict on that note however um another tweet forgive me Mamad. i know i'm not supposed to be using twitter <laughs> but there was a brilliant um tweet from li fang um, on October 7th as well, where he said, um, and I think it was very profound, some people who rightfully point out the problems with identity politics in the U.S. are very happy to embrace ethnic tribalism in the Middle East. Uh, can I throw that over to you and just maybe if you have thoughts on it, um, have you observed that as well? Or, or is that something you'd care to comment on? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's accurate. And I think what what's happening is that the Western elite class is panicked and disoriented uh, by what's happening. Right. Um, no one expected Israel to be militarily vulnerable. And I think most of them were in denial about the extent of Israel's rightward drift into sort of outright genocidal politics. Um it, and, Jamal, Israel does not deliberately shoot civilians. I hope you know right. that. No. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mean, I've seen you this so many. Know. I've seen it right. so much. Really There's thoughtful, intelligent people. Right. No, right. I, I'm not I'm not like kidding. Like really, really yeah. thoughtful, intelligent yeah. people who have taught me a lot in my life about politics, right. taking and this position. On this particular issue have the political uh, wherewithal of of a toddler, yeah, right? Yes, um, it's 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 very interesting to watch, but I think it you know this is this is an underlying symptom of the Western ruling class's inability to understand and come to terms with what's actually happening here, right? And this operates on on two levels. It's a refusal to grapple with the reality of what Israel is, right? Um, Yes, as a settler colonial, you know, ethnostate, blah, blah, blah. Sure, it is that. But we're, we're, this is no longer the sort of genteel labor Zionist settler colonial ethnostate of, of yesteryear, right? This is a different sort of beast. It's become that gradually and then suddenly. And uh, they, they're just not ready to admit that to themselves. Um, the second thing is that the balance of power in the region and globally has shifted. And this latest flare-up didn't cause that shift, but it's kind of exposing it, right? Um, the U.S. cannot power project effectively in the Middle East anymore. Right. Um, the Israeli army is no longer unquestionably the strongest army in the region. That matters a lot. 
And when you see these kind of hysterical, you know, sort of uh, sort of this sort of hysterical Israeli apologia in in the mainstream media and, and you know, uh, from from commentators, I think this is just a reaction to total disorientation at what this latest conflict has laid bare in terms of the geopolitical realities and also the political realities of, of, of Israel. I think they just don't have coordinates anymore and they're panicking and they're saying things that don't make sense. Um, I, I don't know how else to interpret it. Fair enough. Can I add something? Of course. To this? Um, it's also important to note historically, not all the national liberation movement was supported by all the like communist parties and leftists and whatnot in the West. I think the one famous example was the Cuban Revolution. Wasn't really like early on. Wasn't really supported by all the Communist Party. The Algerian struggle for liberation was famously not supported by the French Communist Party, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, I don't think even the French Communist Party supported the 36. Uh, anyway, um, so and that's okay. History doesn't remember that, as you may recall. No one knows that those people didn't support the Cuban, you know, revolution or the Algerian, you know, independence struggle. But what's now we know from history is like now now we know that, you know, these things happen and, you know, Algerians fought the liberation, Cuban revolution happened. So to again say, to go back to saying that your, your opinion matters very, very little on what they would do in terms of uh, fighting for revolution. And I also have a suggestion. So all the leftists have to really pick a side. You know, Nietzsche has a famous saying that when there's an egg on the edge of the wall, kind of like push it to fall on one side. You know, you can't really be centrist on this situation as a Marxist, I would think. Um, all, like we just said this, all the, every, every, Everything was tried with Israel, right? All the avenues has been blocked, right? Or nothing has worked, right? What is your suggestion? Do you, I mean, really, I want to, I want to see your suggestion, uh, because go ahead, go do it right now. <laughs> Cause you know, you, you guys have plenty of time to work on it. So yeah, go try every single other thing that you know that would work in helping the Palestinian liberation because let me tell you they're they're really out of out of option at this point mm -hmm. it's not not nothing has been working for for Israel right and I I see a lot of people you know on on uh on the kind of how, how to put it the Maybe maybe you could call it the anti anti Zionist left, right? The people who aren't right. Zionists but seem really upset with a particular sort of anti Zionist right. politics, right? And and kind of are are getting offended by people, you know, exclaiming too much public sympathy for Hamas and what have you. Um, they 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 like to point to the African National Congress, um, you know, uh, and its its campaign against apartheid South Africa as sort of their example. And it's true that the African National Congress, um, it it did some terrorism, right? Like it it wasn't entirely peaceful, but uh, I, to my knowledge, it never did anything quite like what Hamas has done, particularly right. on on October seventh, right? And that's right. true. You yeah. know that that's a valid point as far as it goes. 
Um, but that's not the only historical parallel that we can draw, right? And if you look at the Algerian FLN. War of Independence, yeah. the FLN was doing absolute things just as brutal as what Hamas is doing. Um, they also won, right? Yeah. So in terms of what you should do, like from the perspective of national liberation movement, you should do what's going to work. That's right. Um, to, to win, to win the freedom of your people. Right. Um, and if the Western left thinks that what you're doing, um, is insufficient or ineffective, like Mahmoud said, it's free to propose alternatives, but Hamas has tried, you know, you can quibble with how serious they were about it. Maybe they should have been peacefully marching towards the wall and getting shot for 10 years instead of two years, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. But mm -hmm. they, they tried it. They gave it a good shot. Like it, it's not reasonable to, to expect them to, to dedicate themselves to peaceful protest forever. Right. Um, yeah. so they, they made their political calculus. Now the question that we have is, well, what are we going to do about it? Right. And not just we, because I don't think, I don't think this is really in the hands of the Western left, uh, at this point, this is in the hands much more so of, um, Middle Eastern governments and to the extent that they are beholden to their populations to Middle Eastern populations mm -hmm. um, because you know as I was mentioning earlier America's power projection is drastically reduced from the level it was at prior to the Iraq war and even to the level it was at prior to its overinvestment in the Ukra in the Ukraine war um, and there's been all sorts of corroborating evidence to the fact that America's investment in Ukraine has specifically sapped its ability to properly supply Israel with, um, you know, Iron Dome missile defense right. uh, missiles with with artillery ammunition, with missiles of all sorts. Right. So um, that's the reality on the ground. And this is different. And so pe people need to be looking at be looking at this instead of just spinning their wheels and trying to figure out the kind of perfect optimal you know moral hamas you know strategy that that would actually work well yeah it, yeah so what you know we, we talked earlier on our opening question today was you know what what happened on october 7th maybe and, and i know you you both offered some context to that um but as we switch now and, and and it's a nice segue there jamal you know to to the regional question can we talk about how october 7th relates to the regional configuration of power now i mean I, as as many of us will know trump was trying to negotiate a regional peace many people are critical of it because th there wasn't really a consideration of the palestinian question in the trump brokered peace and the chickens are maybe now coming home to roost on that um, right. I don't know how that connects to the question of the actual timing of the event, but I know that some there's been some speculation uh, that the event was timed for now in order to prevent a sort of a rapprochement between Ar Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, right. which um, would have sort of aligned them with Israel. Absolutely, yeah. So the the other main motivation, as far as we can tell, for for the 10-7 attacks for, for Hamas's activities was Israel and Saudi were in the process of negotiating a, a rapprochement, uh, some sort of, of peace deal. Um, uh, 
and the Biden administration was heavily involved in this. Now, whether they were actually getting close to any sort of solution is very much, I, I think, a matter for historians to decide. From what I've read, they were not actually particularly close, and that the Palestinian issue was indeed a major sticking point for the Saudis. Um, but Hamas basically... Saudi-Israel rapprochement is an existential threat, not only for Hamas, but for the Palestinian liberation struggle in general. Hamas wanted to scupper that. They succeeded um, 100%. The Saudis are not going back to the table with Israel after this. Um, and in fact, the Saudis have been driven into closer cooperation with Iran, as far as we can tell. There have been unprecedented meetings between the Saudi Crown, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman right. and the Iranian foreign minister. Um, the Saudi and Iranian foreign ministers are talking regularly, I think, for the first time since the revolution. Right. Um, so Iran is being brought into sort of the fold of, um, I guess you could call it the Sunni axis of the Middle East, right, uh, which is Saudi, Egypt, Turkey, um, in in a in a way that it hasn't been in the past. Um, right. So this. Hamas, if if you look geopolitically at, at the effect of this, setting aside the effect it's having on the Palestinian population, which is, of course, horrendous, um, Hamas got what it wanted, or seems to be getting what it wanted out of this operation from a geopolitical standpoint. Iran and Saudi are now talking. Israel and Saudi are not talking. That's, mm. from Hamas's perspective... Yeah. That's good. They've headed off an existential threat to their political aspirations. Um, now, what's going to happen? So basically, Israel operates as an American power projection outpost in the Middle East. Um, it forces the other countries in the region to take into account its military superiority when determining what their alliance structures are going to look like, right? And Israel's existence allows the United States to, for example, enlist Egypt as a, a stalwart regional ally because Egypt knows that if it goes against the Israeli uh, American sort of uh, power projection uh, scheme, it will be in a very difficult geopolitical position, right? Same with the Saudis, uh, same with the Turks who are in NATO, right? But now things are looking a little bit different because Israel is much weaker and the United States is much weaker than any of these countries had had assumed was the case. Right Now, we don't know how that will shake out in the end. And you can sort of rank the, the regional powers in terms of their dedication to the American-led security you know, project, right? With Egypt being relatively more dedicated than Saudi, which is relatively more dedicated than Turkey, which is obviously considerably more dedicated than Iran, right? Like you can maybe mix them up a little bit, but that's kind of the general trajectory, right? So at this point, Iran is in from the cold. It's talking to all the major powers in the region, and you only really need one of them to kind of drift in their direction for things to really change. Now, we don't know if that's going to happen now, but you don't have to be a rocket science scientist to figure out that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it's going to happen at some point, right? Like the, particularly with, with Russia and China and BRICS and, and de-dollarization, all these other phenomena that we know are coming, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. U.S. is declining as a global hegemon. It's going to start losing its its satrapies gradually. <laughs> and you can kind of see it happening in real time, or at least the, the first steps of that that process occurring right now in the Middle East. Right. Um, and it's not maybe not as a result of what Hamas did, but what Hamas did exposed 
you know, those opportunities for the players in the region uh, that had remained sort of latent or under the surface. So, you know, that's a very good uh, transition to think about the Israeli role in all of this. I think uh, something we haven't really touched on so far in this conversation. Uh, Jamal, you just there said that Israel is kind of a, a U.S. outpost, which, of course, evokes, I think, what is by now an old debate, but maybe something worth revisiting here. Uh, which is, of course, Chomsky versus like John Mearsheimer, essentially, right? Mearsheimer, of course, had been the author or co-author with Stephen Walt, famous international relations theorists, both of them, of uh, a book called The Israel Lobby, where ostensibly they suggest that, you know, the tail wags the dog when it comes to U.S.-Israel relations. Um Chomsky famously replies to this and says, uh-uh, you know, the U.S. doesn't do anything that's not in its self-interest uh, there's only one reason why the United States uh, supports Israel, and that is because it allows the United States to project power in the region. How do the events, I mean, you've already kind of answered it in some ways, because I think what you're saying is that that this has, this has been kind of symptomatic of a, a sign of imperial or hegemonic decline for the United States and also Israel as well. Um, but... Uh, I don't know if if um, the very staunch and, and strident pro-Israeli statements of the Biden administration can be uh, sort of just so quickly uh, cast as uh, based on U.S. interests. There seems to be a kind of almost um, a cultural problem playing out here. Uh, is there any truth to the idea that there is an Israel lobby in the United States. And how far down this road can we go before we, you know, we, you know, get accused of inevitably, you know, because, you know, if you think about what happened to Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, you know, or even Bernie Sanders, ironically enough, you know, at a certain point, there is this question of, you know, anti-Semitism begins to play out. And it is, it is, I think, more than simply a question of the United States being a powerful country and Israel just simply being a satrap. Right. Or a satrapy, so I, I, think, I think Mearsheimer and, and Walt's um, thesis is broadly correct mm. that, yes, to, obviously Israel does act as a power projection, um, an outpost for power projection for the United States in the, United, in the Middle East. But at the same time, American foreign policy is not really determined by what is rationally in the national interest of the United States on this particular question. It is determined by what is in the political interests of American politicians. Mm -hmm. And those American politicians view their immediate political interests uh, through the lens of the operations of the Israel lobby, right? And so they are incentivized to adopt stances that make no sense geopolitically towards Israel, but that make considerable sense, at least to their estimation, um, at a national or, or federal or American political uh, level um, due to the funding, due to, due to the operations of the lobby. Um, but I, I think that what you're seeing in this broader context of American imperial decline and is that when, when decisions start being made like this, when your, when your, your sort of border colony starts actually determining policy for the metropole, um, that is a sign of, of incredible elite senility and 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 decay right like it, it can you imagine like chinese 
politics being determined by North Korea, for example, <laughs> like Kim Jong-un calling up Xi Jinping and telling him, giving him his marching orders, it would be insane. That would be a sign that China was just a shambolic failure of, of, a, of a global power, right? It happened That's in France happening. in the 50s, right? With Algeria. Right, right, right. Exactly. I mean, it, this is this is a sign that the United States is has clearly lost its marbles. Mm -hmm. it, it's the American elites are no longer thinking clearly about what's in their own interests, like their own durable interests, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. They're thinking immediately about, oh, how do I head off some sort of APAC funded primary challenger? How do I prevent, you know, whatever, right? Like the, it's this very myopic, very stupid, you know, political calculus that that European countries that initially piled on with the United States, I think instinctively because they, you know, they, they got into the habit bizarrely after the Iraq war, but they've somehow gotten into the habit of, of just following the, the U.S.'s lead on, on foreign policy. Um, and I think Ukraine had a lot to do with this. Sure. Um, they are kind of realizing that, wait, the Americans hadn't really, the, the Americans aren't behaving rationally, right? The Israelis aren't behaving rationally. Um, these are countries that are in the throes of internal dysfunction so severe that it's hampering their ability to behave in ways that make sense, even from their own self-interest, self-interest, right? And it's funny because like I've grown up always told that Iranian regime behaves. I don't, I'm, by the way, I'm not trying to support the Iranian government, but it's, it's like, okay. it you seems can, like can they're tell us more... the truth here, Mamad. You're safe. You're among friends. <laughs> no, no it, it seems like they're more pragmatic, more than the U.S. in terms of their real politic. You know, they, if you look at what they've done, you know, in the geopolitics stuff, part of it was because Iran wanted to, to talk to Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. you know, and in, in, in terms of their, uh, proxy war and everything else it, it handled it uh interestingly i'm not saying they're also not myopic and stupid in some of their situations they got into but you could see that uh um th there's a logic behind whatever they did you know they they somehow were managed to not have a conflict uh, or not have U.S. attack them, basically, at situations that was, uh, you know, the heightens and everything else. And the other thing is that, uh, uh, that I wanted to mention. Oh, one thing I wanted to, I mean, this is kind of a side topic, but there was like a Saudi uh, Asian Soccer Championship League game. And al Ittihad was playing Sepahan, which was a soccer team, you know, it was like a Champions League. And there was like a situation happened at Al Ittihad uh, because of the statue of Qasem Soleimani left Isfahan, which is Sepahan is based on, and then that became like a media frenzy over there. You know, like it was just like uh, all the Iranians were pissed off, like oh, how come the Saudis did this again? And then immediately the foreign ministry was like, no, we're, you know, this is a miscommunication we you know we're in talk with saudi arabia 24 7 <laughs> so it's just so it seems like they are as jamal said they are uh you know in talks with them and they thought their relationship completely at this point right and that situation just you know just nothing happened basically sort of resolved 
So yeah, it seems like they, as Jamal also said, it seems like the the uh, they kind of lost the. Uh, I would say PR game as well the the U.S. and Israel because it's like it it they do seem like kind of uh, unreasonable with what they're trying to do or their their set of actions or plan. Yeah, I mean, I, that's absolutely true. Like, um, you know, the U.S.'s strongest ally in the Middle East, besides Israel, is Egypt, right? And uh, keeping Egypt on side is essential to protecting Israel because Egypt is, at least in terms of um, its population, the largest um, and most important country in the region. Um, it's, period, it's, it's perennially mismanaged uh, and kind of an economic basket case, so it tends to punch below its weight. But, um, <laughs> you know, you, you can see the calculus at play. And the Israelis have been basically openly in in their diplomatic conversations with the United States, basically saying, um, "Okay, the plan is we're going to ethnically cleanse Gaza and we're going to just going to settle them across the border in Egypt and the Sinai. And the Egyptians who are predisposed to being sympathetic to the United States and sympathetic to Israel because that's, you know, that's the nature of the Egyptian regime. The Egyptians were just absolutely flabbergasted by this. It's I mean, it's just an insane idea that you're going to get Egypt um, to basically countenance the ethnic cleansing of Gaza, take in two million angry refugees and settle them in a part of. Egypt that the central government has limited control over because it's controlled by jihadi tribesmen, right? It's like it's absolutely mind-boggling. So the 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 American Israeli foreign policy, you know, sort of uh, uh, attempts have been just shambolic. That is pretty uh, shambolic, isn't it? When you think it's, about like, it's insane. They they mounted a Sunday morning talk show campaign in and around that idea. There were several guests on. Uh, right. Over the last uh, weekend or two, uh, literally trying to pitch this idea, and it just—it it was, it, as you say, like I mean, the impracticalities of it. But they were like, "No, no, no, we're ready to roll. We can get the militaries going to set up tents. The United States is ready and willing to provide aid to make this." And you're like, "Wait a minute, no! Like you're literally talking about moving two million people out, bombing all their houses, bulldozing them, and then what? Like." Right. They're not coming back, right? They're not going to well, be I mean, able to come back. Yeah. Well, the Egyptian regime wouldn't survive it, right? Even if it and it knows that, and that's one of the reasons I want to agree to it. But I mean, I, I think this, you know, this is kind of emblematic of the total incompetence of American foreign policy yeah. in the region. Um, and this goes back, you know, at least to the Iraq War. But that's kind of where all this started because. The United States under George W. Bush invaded Iraq um, bizarrely as part of seemingly an effort to isolate Iran because the idea was, OK, we, we control Afghanistan, we control Iraq, we're going to surround Iran on both sides, right? Well, what's actually happened is that Iraq has has become an Iranian basically proxy uh, state at this right. point. Um, it, and this has allowed Iran to have a land connection to its other regional ally, Syria, right? And, you know, lest anyone think, you know, we're being too sympathetic of Iran, like we can freely admit that Iran and Syria's, uh, you know, actions against civilians over the course of the Syrian civil war have resulted in exponentially more civilian casualties than are ever going to emerge from Israel's actions against the Palestinians. That That's just a fact. Like, so this isn't a matter of good guys, bad guys. Um, right. 
this is a matter of, of who was geopolitically intelligent and who wasn't. Mm. And so the United States makes Iraq into an Iranian ally, gives Iran the ability to support its Syrian ally and keep Assad in power even after his population is, is rising up against them. And now, after that, after the United States has witnessed the total failure of its neocon, you know, sort of adventurism <laughs> in, in, in yeah. the region, it's still doing it. It's still mm. doing the same thing. It still wants to keep doing it, right? It still thinks, oh, we can keep we can keep isolating Iran like that's, you know, it's not going to happen. Iran is much stronger than it was back in back before the Iraq war. And the rest of the region is, realizes that and is talking to them. And it this idea that that the United States can just keep Iran, you know, under lockdown forever. Well, it's not happening like American military bases are at much more risk of of attack from Iran than than vice versa. Right? Oh, indeed, like, I think Iran, some of that's already happening in. Uh, it's already in, happening. Yeah, 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 and the U.S. has not retaliated against Iran because it it knows that that's a fight it couldn't win. You know, One thing, and, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm jumping in, but it was funny that how remember it was the one of the bases was like attacked by a missile, and then the U.S. came out. It was like, haha, that base was empty. It's like <laughs> giving that away, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, the, the the U.S. like is coming under attack from all of these kind of minor Iranian allied Shiite militias, you know, all throughout Iraq, Syria, um, the Houthis in Yemen are firing intercontinental ballistic missiles at Southern Israel, right. That the U S is having to like shoot right. down. It's like, how did they even get those missiles? Like Yemen is like, <laughs> so I don't far know, away. it's like, it's like 7,000 miles away or something. I don't know the exact amount. Right. But it's crazy that they're even able to do that. And the U S isn't retaliating because it knows that what's it going to do? Like the U S the U S lost, to the Taliban in Afghanistan, right? Iran is twice the size of Afghanistan. I don't know, three times the population of Afghanistan, the exact same mountainous desert terrain. Um, it has a border on the on the Persian Gulf where most of the world's oil is produced. It can shut down the Straits of Hormuz to prevent shipping whenever it wants. Like this is, the US is totally unprepared for a military confrontation with Iran. And that's setting aside the reality that the American public would would lose its shit if we were to go to war with Iran. Like there is no way that that Biden or Trump or anyone else could actually pull that off and and not, you know, get 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 overthrown. So it's it's just shocking. It's it's kind of shocking how stupid and decrepit, you know, the American foreign policy decision making apparatus is at this point. And yeah, it all goes it all goes to show that what's happening here is not just about this particular flare-up of violence between Israel and the Palestinians, right? right? What's happening here is the U.S. is collapsing as a regional superpower, uh, in the Middle East at least, and that has huge implications for, for global politics. Okay, I'm so glad you guys are both here. This has been tremendously educational for me. I find uh, I'm being challenged on certain things. I'm, I'm, I'm finding out some new things that, you know, the, 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 the distinction here, for example, earlier on between the military faction, the political faction of, of Hamas is something I was not really sensitive to until now, uh, 
thinking with some of my family's connections to Northern Ireland, you would think that actually I would have uh, been able to uh, fathom that possibility, but you know, I guess just hadn't thought it through. So the next two moves here, I think, as we begin to kind of move towards the end of the show, um, in my mind are going to be something like, what should we be advocating for number one? And then not that we have crystal balls, but you know, like where's it heading? Cause obviously what we want and what we get are not necessarily the same thing. I think, you know, we've seen recently since the start of the, since 10, seven, basically, um, Biden's support has dropped by, I think 11 points. Right. Most of that support is localized. Most of that drop in support is localized in sort of younger generations. Um, this is becoming a, a live political issue in the United States in a way that it has not been historically, right? Historically, the elite classes, the American ruling classes, unyielding support for Israel um, was more or less echoed among the American population. That is no longer really the case. And we saw some very interesting polling in the early stages of this um, that showed that a majority of the American population opposed sending weapons to Israel. A majority of the American population supported sending humanitarian aid to, to the Palestinians. Um, and it seems like, I mean, the, depending very strongly on, on how the, the question is worded, it seems like a majority of the American population supports a ceasefire, um, which is kind of in a congressional context, the most furthest left possible you know, stance, mm -hmm. right? But this is a stance supported by maybe 10 members of Congress, supported seemingly by a majority of the American population. And I think this kind of explains part of why the American, you know, ruling apparatus has become so shrill and hysterical because they realize that the kind of playbook, the 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 mainstream media lockdown on reporting um, it no longer works in an age of social media um, and in an age of viral videos and and forums and all you know the the way that people you know consume news these days is radically different. And they just can't make it work anymore. Like the the they know that the the popular mandate for unstinting support for Israel is gone. And so they need to be even more frenetic in their attempts to enforce that consensus among the political class, because as soon as the political class starts actually paying attention to what's going outside, gone outside the window with protests and polling and so forth, they might start to get cold feet. Right. So I think that's kind of what's happening. So in that context, the American left, you know, it can play a, a supporting role, you know, trying to call for, um, for a ceasefire and so on and so forth. But I think, you know, it, taking up, I think what started with, with sort of populist opposition to the, our recurring interventions in Ukraine and all the billions of dollars we've given to, to Zelensky's government, right? Tying that kind of increasingly unpopular neocon project to now, now you want us to give another hundred billion to Israel. Now you want us to, to, you know, potentially put American soldiers' lives at risk um, to to protect this faraway country that doesn't even, you know, bring us any mm. conceivable benefit. Um, I think that kind of argumentation can find resonance, you know, among the broader working class yeah. um, without without any need to bring in settler colonialism, settler colonialism and that kind all, of thing. All that stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. And no, I guess you read my mind on that one because uh, it's precisely this question of what what is the strategic approach to this that that can actually 
move the move the ball. Right. You know. What well, well, you know, it, it's important just just to be clear that you know Israel is a settler colonial project. Like that's yeah. not you. You can read you know sort of early Zionists and they very clearly envision what they're doing as a settler colonial project yeah. in the same vein as South Africa, Algeria, so on and so forth. Right. right? Like that's you. You can't in good faith you know, dispute that. Right. Um, at the same time, that doesn't that doesn't need to be the messaging. And that's not the most relevant messaging for the American people. I think the most relevant messaging for the American people is our infrastructure is falling apart. Um, our country's in shambles. Right. Our kids can't afford to get married or or, or buy houses. Yeah. And you want to give billions, billions and billions of dollars to this to this foreign country that that disrespects us, treats us like shit kill civilians at whim like no you know like i think that's i think that's the message that the american people uh, particularly after all the ukraine nonsense are are willing to to go along with i i also want to yeah. add something to this uh what we could done what needs to be done with the american version um i do i i agree about the you know all the post-colonial dialogue uh, it seems like over the all my college years moving forward, which mm -hmm. I'm also myself Middle Eastern, so I was really involved with like first as Iranian uh, 2000, uh, 2009 Green Movement. And then it was like right after that was the Arab Spring. So I was there, you know. So, and it seems like over the years, first it was that I think I'm referencing Asif Bayad, I'm not sure, but he, I think he was the one that said that was this was a Twitter revolution. You know, this is a revolution without leader and this and that. And all the action so far was like going towards like social media. Like at one point, they're just like, guys, there's something happening. Let's do a like a hashtag trend or something to do some change. And it seems like it's kind of that right now. It still is like a lot of the millennials that I grew up with now. They're only used to the virtual signaling politics, right? Um, that being said, I don't think, I don't know if they ever they all worked. They might some might some uh, some of them might worked uh, during all these years, but I don't know how that would work out work. So I don't really suggest any, you know, virtual signaling or writing statements and. I don't think I don't know how beneficial that would be. However, one thing that the conflicts of Ukraine and you know this Palestine and probably future conflict, hopefully not, but future conflicts would overshadow is the labor movement, for example, right? Like the what happened with the uh, the United Auto Workers right. Union, right? That news kind of was, I, I don't want to say it was overshadowed by the situation because it should have been a little bit, but I think that is an extremely important point to for American leftists to focus on. Uh, I think we are in the middle of also so, sort of a class consciousness that is unprecedented for the last 70 to 80 years. Uh, and also something that I personally came from you know, that mindset of virtual signaling and then slowly came to the labor side. And I think uh, leftists are generally in the U.S. are kind of realizing this because like electoral politics, it's not really working out. We've seen the results, especially after Bernie and then, you know, everything else. So 
I think we should really focus on our internal politics, focus on our labor politics, and hopefully we have like a strong uh, leverage then to to change. So Mamad, I, I guess this is a, a kind of a key question because I, I've seen a lot of people back and forth on this in various fora over the last week or two. Um, I get it. And actually, I agree with you. I, I think organizing labor is the only way we can make a difference. That's, you know, my political program as well. So I'm right there with you. But that's not really where we're at right now, you know. And I just wonder, sometimes, can we go a little bit too far with this kind of very casual sort of hand-waving gesture of, you know, oh, that's just virtue signaling. Um, the reality is, this is a very urgent crisis. It's clear that thousands of people are dying, uh, you know, um, hundreds a day. Uh, I don't know how long. Israel can keep this up. I don't know how much munition they have. I know there's an internal political crisis that will eventually, um, you know, I think catch up on uh, the leadership class there. Again, we, we haven't really talked enough, I think, in this episode so far about internal Israeli politics. Maybe we do want to touch on that before we wrap up tonight. But um, I, I do think that mobilizing voters as, as jamal said the, the the collapsing support for biden since the outbreak of this crisis is indicative of a uh the, the possibilities of what we might call outsider strategy yeah. you know there's that old dichotomy of insider strategy outsider strategy mm -hmm. inside the beltway outside the beltway um you know inside the beltway yeah, is all I lobby can, groups outside the beltway is, is popular mo popular mobilization and you know I, I i i know uh not not to not to get into old debates about force the vote and things like that but you know i think there have been some missed opportunities in the sort of traditional ferment of left politics uh over the last uh couple of years since the uh since the biden administration came to power and i I sort of, I sort of feel like, because because the the situation is not ideal for us, we we may have to have more moderated. Understood. Mm. I I would answer this in a way that yeah I think I'll rephrase this a little bit. I do think those what I said about uh, virtual signaling all that stuff, Twitter or whatnot, they're all still important. Mm -hmm. However, I think it it over the years what I said you know like during the. Uh, you know, Arab Spring or whatnot. What I said is organizing is equally just as important. Even like, you know, we also have to give a lot of credit to the Palestinian diaspora. Right. I think they got the, they're really onto something with their uh, <coughs> media uh, game or whatever mm -hmm. you call it. Um, they did a really good job. And I think they have been looking critically all these years to how they're supposed to handle a media situation or fog of war. And I think they do have a support now. And it was, I think, is unprecedented. And partially is because of the social media, the new age of media, per se, um, that people want it. People don't really believe in the uh, mainstream anymore. So they go to all the alternative media. So these are yeah. very important. I do, but I do think even for the, all the protests, which shout out to all those people that did the protests in Chicago, right. New York, and everybody else, uh, you even need organizing for those, right? For so, 
organizing here is different conversation. Of course. I don't think I don't think it's really something that is totally related to the social media or like profiles of people online. I think organizing is more about really like old school just organizing people, you know, just calling one on one. I don't know, like what however it's being done. Um so that and they go you know hand in hand like if you're experiencing organizing labor organizing you know your tenants and stuff you're developing more skills for uh, political actions so that's what i was trying to get at because um, from my experience all the focus all these years as a college student was on the other side it was on more uh you know doing more of a you know, like uh, not real work, basically just statements and I know what you're talking do about. Do change.com. Sure. You know, I was glad that I didn't see change.com for the Palestinian situation this time. Right. No, I think I think you're right. I think you know this is the kind of what what you're queuing up is the kind of organizing ethos that people like Jane McAlevey are are so well known for, and and, and I I totally accept that. Uh, Jamal, did you want to come in on this? Yeah, yeah. With, with regard to um, the the dynamics within the United States and and sort of what the opportunities are for the for the left here, I, I think a couple of points. First, um, the popular shift away from support for Israel in the United States is not the result of any concerted propaganda effort or strategy, right? Okay. Um, this is an organic development brought about, I think, largely because people have lost confidence in the mainstream media and are and are finding their news via other sources but it's simply the american public converging on public opinion of the rest of the world right That's like very true. A, yeah. there there is the only reason the american public was so supportive of israel in the past uh was because they were fed a, a constant diet of of pro-israel propaganda in the mainstream media um that has decayed um, and so the American public is is simply looking at the facts and like the vast majority of people around the world is coming to the same conclusion that basically the problem is that Israel is an apartheid state. You're right. Um, and this goes hand in hand with, uh, you know, we, we mentioned um, what's happening, you know, politically in Israel. And we can go briefly into that. Yeah, we um, could. Yeah. But um, basically. Uh, the old labor Zionist wing of the Israeli political spectrum is dead in Israel. It's been replaced by a pretty, pretty explicitly fascist, um, you know, settler obsessed religious nationalist wing uh, around that Netanyahu is sort of the central figure in. Um, that shift in Israel has not at all been mirrored in the American Jewish community. If anything, the right. American Jewish community has been moving left at just as you know, on this issue specifically, at at perhaps even quicker a rate than the Israeli uh, polity, you know, polity has been moving right. And so now you see a huge divergence um, between American Jews in the diaspora and Israelis um, on this issue. And this is why if you go to any pro-Palestine um, protest, uh, if you join any Palestine solidarity organization, you know, on campus or wherever, a, a very disproportionate number of the people in those organizations at those protests are Jews, right? Because um, the 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 support, the hegemonic support for Israel within the Jewish community is 
is long gone at this point. Um, it, I'm not exactly sure when it started. A lot of people localize it to Obama and Netanyahu's spats kind of alienating Israel from the Democratic base voter. Hmm. Um, but wherever it began, um, this is something that Israel is going to have to deal with going forward because it cannot count on the Jewish population in the United States to be supportive of it anymore. Um, and as soon as generational change sort of, obviously the, the sort of the people in charge of groups like APAC and so forth come from a very different generation, but, um, and, and the support base, the donor base for a group like, like APAC are overwhelmingly going to be boomers, right? Um, as this generational cohort replacement occurs, I think that just as Israel's geopolitical reliance on the United States is is going to to become less and less certain, um, its ability to rely on a coherent um, support base for its lobbying efforts domestically in the United States is going to become just as sort of uh, undercut, right? The simple reality is that uh, American Jews no longer feel anything like the connection they, they used to feel to the Zionist project. Um, and this kind of brings us to another point, which is that support for the Palestinians is an issue of left liberal convergence um, that is quite singular because it implies opposition to the mainstream political consensus, right? Right. On most issues of left liberal convergence, um, <laughs> for example, you know, trans rights, for example, this is an issue where liberals COVID lockdowns, you name it, COVID right? Lockdown. Yeah. Right. This is an, these are issues where left leftists and liberals have been very happy to get in bed together. Yeah. And where that sort of alliance has 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 very conspicuously been embraced by the major power players in American society. Right corporate the corporate world you know the university administrations exactly. the army you know so on and yeah. so forth right um that is not the case with israel palestine leftists and liberals uh, you know rank and file let's say democratic voter liberals um are converging on a pro-palestine stance that puts them very sharply at odds with the mainstream of the democratic party and the mainstream of the american political apparatus that offers opportunities that these other left liberal convergence projects do not, right? This offer this offers leftists the ability to take the outrage that rank and file liberals are feeling about what appears to be a genocide in the Gaza Strip and use that to lead them towards uh, class analysis um, in a way that endlessly talking about white privilege or whatever has not you know, done. Right. Um, and, you know, let's there's a there's an isolationist element of the dissident populist right, even, yes, you know, yes. the, the rank of, you know, Trump voters love Israel, but Trump voters are also famously skeptical of of foreign involvement. And yep. if you can talk to them in that language about what's going on, you know, in Israel, Palestine, you might be able to make some progress. So the, I, I just want to this is a bit inchoate, but I wanted to sort of push back against this latent sort of thing that I've been hearing that because the wokes like Palestine, that means that it's it's antithetical to a class first politics. Right. Uh, and it's not in this particular case. It's different. Right. Yeah. In this particular case, um, 
class politics actually align, the wokes have accidentally stumbled into <laughs> a, a, a good solid class line. And you shouldn't you shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? If yeah. you've got all these, you know, sort of otherwise um, kind of politically naive uh, liberals kind of uh, embracing what happens to be a, a, a very, um, you know, a, a very positive um, cause, uh, great, you know, yeah. more power. To if it. anything, Israel is more woke than. Palestine situation are trying it's, certainly it's, trying to come over right well way. yeah, you, yeah you see with the Israeli propaganda sort of operation on Twitter them trying to plug into this kind of woke rhetoric right it's just not working um yeah. uh, and, and it's not it, it's not for want of trying it's not because the the political mainstream has been hasn't been pushing this stuff obviously Israel's been been doing this whole pink washing thing you know mm -hmm. oh look we're so we're friendly you know for ages right but um, it, it's just so beyond the pale that no one takes it seriously. Um, uh, and, and, and I think people do take it seriously, Jamal. Unfortunately, I might disagree with you slightly on that. Um, I, I think a lot of people do take seriously the kind of implicit idea, at least, that um, you know Israel is a secular republic. <laughs> I know it doesn't make much sense, right? But you know, a secular republic in the Middle East, uh, a society of laws and values. Um, and uh, you know homosexuality is protected there, whereas you know uh, what's what's Hamas going to do uh, with, with gay people if they take over Palestine, right? You know that's that's that that I, I, you hear it all the time, all the right. time. You, you hear it all the time, but you don't hear it from people who you would expect. You you hear it from the usual suspects, right? You you hear it from people whose baseline politics is unswerving support for Israel and who kind of produced this as sort of a, a justification for that. But uh -huh. for, for people whose baseline politics is unswerving support for the entire array of left liberal culture war stances, you don't really hear that, right? You're not hearing um, that kind of rhetoric emerging at Black Lives Matter protests or, or anywhere else you would expect it to actually resonate, right? It doesn't resonate um, with, with that population, with the population that it's it's clearly aimed at convincing right right of course um and i think this is this is part of a, a a larger dynamic here where you can obviously and and i've seen various commentators sort of become obsessed with this kind of um woke convergence on the palestine issue right and and they try to classify it as just one of these other intersectional you know sort of struggles that the wokes have adopted over the course of the last uh, you know 10 or so years um and it's not quite that because the convergence on Palestine A is not just a function of the of the act of the left liberal activist stratum, right? This is not just something that's happening, you know, on 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 the part of committed lifestyle lifestyleists and activists who who just are constantly doing this sort of this treadmill of trending new causes. This is happening at the level of normal people, like an eleven percent swing in the Democratic uh, you know vote share in polling overnight. That's not the activist strata. That's that's right? not just the suburban PMC college educated. Right. Right. Class, There's right. something happening there that that is much larger than, oh, brainwashed kids on college campuses. Oh, kids who spend too much time on Tumblr. Oh, mm -hmm. like subcultures who who, mm -hmm. who like to who like to go out and protest this that, and the other thing. Something else is happening here. And you look at the you look at the protests that are happening in Europe. Um, this is of a, a vastly different order of magnitude than uh, even in the United States than any of these other 
concerns. Yeah. Um, and it's qualitatively different as well in, in the sense that that we've been talking about in, in the sense that it's inimical to the mainstream consensus politics of the American ruling class. So um, I, I think it's just important for people to kind of to get yeah. that clear. Right. Like it may seem incongruous, strange bedfellows and all that going right. on, but it makes sense. And uh, yeah, it's <laughs> Jamal, it sounds that... like, you know, in, you know, in the Blues Brothers, there's the kind of uh, the line of like, we're putting the band back together. Right. And it's almost <laughs> it's almost like, you know, you can almost sort of see the, the left uh, sort of finding its common ground again and accidentally on this, uh, you know, terribly and terribly catastrophic development right. in the course of world history um right and and also to go back to, to what Ramad was saying the fact that this is nice and it makes you feel good to see the left kind of actually agree about something uh does not mean that this should become the centerpiece of organizing efforts going forward right of like, course the end of the day we we have to be just because it's nice and just because it you know <laughs> it, it's a it's an opportunity for the left it doesn't mean that this is going to be the new big thing that's going to magically solve the, the the problems of that left that leftists have reaching a working class constituency, right? Um, at the end of the day, labor organizing still is the only way that we're going to reconstitute something approaching a, a pull for class politics in the United States. That doesn't mean ignore this, right? But at the same time, it it doesn't mean that this is now the flagship issue that everything has to revolve around, right? So I think we're kind of getting to the end of the show now at this stage. I got one more question for you both. And um, maybe, Mamad, you could sort of lead us off on this. Um, this is going to be a a long-term project that I don't, you know, assuming World War III doesn't break out tomorrow and we don't blow all blow each other to bits. Uh, and I think that's not a trivial uh, possibility right now. Um, I'm curious what the actual resolution to this crisis will look like. Um, will uh, Israel continue to just uh, demolish Gaza and destroy the lives of the people there. Um, at what point does someone say, presumably the Biden administration, because I think it's the only one they'd listen to. Um, at, at what point does, does someone say, look, th this has to stop, you know, enough now. Um, uh, is there a, a peace conference that takes place on the other side of this? Um, Hamas, I have heard, um, has from time to time advocated a return to pre-67 borders. That, that That's what has to happen. Yeah. And so, what does a settlement to this crisis look like? I guess that's what I'm asking yeah. you. One of my analysis of what Israel is, is that um, if you follow all the national liberation movements from, you know, early on, and uh, you realize, like, you know, the way French, for example, um behave in managing their subjects and uh like they had an assimilation project basically whether mm. it was united states australia you know france um and there was a uh, obviously a, a material um piece to this too as well like they were using there were exploitations going on you know with the, especially with the french there was assimilation like they were uh like you know like manifest destiny they're, they're trying to 
uh, civilized, quote unquote, the the subjects and everything else. It does seem like even from the get go of Israel, that was never the project, right? Israel project from the get go was that we are we want an ethno state that was only for Jews. Like and there's no plan for the assimilation. There was nothing for their colonial settled colonial subjects, for example, right? And it does seem like whatever the Israel is doing right now is uh, it doesn't seem like it has that in mind. So, and part of the reason why all this liberation with South Africa and all those countries that we talked about happened it was you know because they had similar elements like they had a home base and then there was a settlers and you know they kind of supported each other for israel i don't know what their plan is like they're really their only plans all these years has been to basically ethnically cleanse arabs from palestine mm-hmm. and it does and creating it only jewish states only for jews and uh it it does not seem like that's ever going to change it it does seem like they they are uh really set on having an an uh you know ethnically cleansed uh palestine um so uh, unless they really change like revolution happen within themselves and they would completely forego their project they started in uh, uh from the first day of israel um i don't really see any resolution to be honest with you they really have to really change they really have to give up the project of what it's called you know israel i mean i don't know maybe they they would figure out somehow they want to have a you know republic of Jews and Arabs together I have, I have no idea but I don't really see any solution for for what they exactly want to do because every single we talked about this every single option has been tried yeah two state solution having you know palace like the Arabs within Israel having them certain rights it just seems like none of the options they put forward have ever worked and or they ever want to do follow those uh reforms sure so they they really have to really have to change so jamal maybe you can take that up sure can the region obviously i i I think mamad has articulated very well there the the worst case scenario which is that israel continues with its campaign in an unrestrained manner if i'm going by your earlier comments the region itself has a has a force here and likely the populations of the various surrounding countries would not easily countenance a complete genocide of the palestinian people so i mean what right is that an effective force for constraining israel at this stage yeah i mean clearly it is there's a reason israel hasn't literally killed every Palestinian or literally forced every Palestinian Mm. off their land. And it's not because the Israeli political system is motivated by some sort of um, humanitarian concern for the well-being, right? Um, Israel does not have a free hand. If it did have a free hand, you know, given the tenor of, you know, the contemporary Israeli government, every Palestinian would be dead or or in Egypt by now, right? Um, (laughs) That's 
Israel has just enough of a free hand that its uh, political elites delude themselves into thinking they have more of a free hand than they do, if, if that makes sense. Right. Um, but we're, we're running up against the limits of their room of maneuver right now. They thought, honestly, they seem to have thought that they could convince Egypt to take these people. And Egypt said, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Um, they honestly thought that they had an insurmountable military advantage over the rest of uh, the countries in the region. And they basically have spent the last couple of weeks getting their asses kicked by Hamas, um, a, a, a sort of incredibly, by comparison, ra ragtag, you know, sort of resistance organization that operates out of tunnels and never uses the Internet and communicates by carrier pigeon. Right. Like this is um, <laughs> something so. Basically, there are two levers on there are two forces acting against uh, Israel's um, ability to to carry out whatever dreams of ethnic cleansing it may have. The first is the United States, which, um, in spite of the Biden administration's sort of slavish um, uh, uh, support for whatever Netanyahu wants, does have different political incentives than Israel and will at a certain point step in. Um, and intervene. Um, now, in this current conflict, that moment of intervention will probably come after many tens of thousands of Palestinians have died, either through direct shelling or or, um, or starvation or what have you. Um, but eventually, the United States will not allow an actual genocide to occur. Or at least that's the the calculus that 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 the Israelis always seem to to believe. Um, the hmm. other counter to Israeli um, operational freedom is simply they are worried about a, a regional coalition against them. And the United States has spent the last several decades trying desperately to rope various regional powers into alliance with Israel so it doesn't have to worry about backstopping Israel in a regional war. Um, those efforts, as we discussed earlier, are falling apart. Right. Um, Iran, Iraq, Syria form an axis that is completely hostile to Israel um, with uh, the support of Russia and China. Now, the extent to that support remains very much to be seen, but they, they have great power support from outside the region. Um, and they have the support. They operate via proxies such as the Houthis in Yemen. They have a wide sort of range of operation beyond the borders of those three countries. Um, and then you have kind of middle powers, um, uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Turkey for them are the big ones um, that are that are part of the American security umbrella in large part because of Israel's perceived strength. Now that Israel is much weaker than it seemed to be, and Israel is much more genocidal than it seemed to be, the calculus for these countries is going to shift. And we can already see this happening. We've talked about the Saudi-Iranian diplomatic context. We've talked about the fact that Egypt is basically telling Israel to go fuck itself when when it when it tries to to send these people across the border. But um, the big one is Turkey. Um, the big one is Turkey because Turkey is a NATO member, which means that yeah. um, Israel can't attack it yeah. <laughs> because otherwise Turkey invokes the attack on one is attack on all yeah. clause in the NATO. The defense, NATO, yeah, uh, yeah. defense treaty. 
um, and suddenly and that would destroy NATO. I, that would destroy right, NATO. That, it would absolutely destroy NATO. Right. Yeah. So Turkey has tremendous geopolitical leverage in in that sole respect. That's a large the largest army in the region. Um, it's economically, you know, and it's flexed that in Ukraine too, which is absolutely. not a trivial point. Yeah. Absolutely, and Turkey has been, um, you know, Turkey negotiate was heavily involved in negotiating at various points between Ukraine and Russia, playing the role of neutral mediator. Um, Erdogan has cultivated uh, an, ide- an ideology of neo-Ottomanism, sort of Turkey reasserting its preeminent position in the Middle East, kind of as the 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 big brother, right? Like corralling all of the the Arab states. Um, and Erdogan is getting to the end of his political career. Right. Um, he is a bit of a megalomaniac, uh, to put it lightly. Uh, he knows how to whip up popular support. Uh, and there was, there was this footage, I don't know if you guys saw, but mm. uh, a rally of, of 250,000, I think was the number that I saw, 250,000 people in Istanbul, Erdogan helicopters in gives a speech to the rally saying we could intervene at any moment when the crowd starts chanting, um, you know, Turkish army to Gaza, Turkish army to Gaza, right? Like wow. this, this, did that, was not that today happen. or when was that? Uh, I'm not sure if it was today or, or yesterday. It was very recently, but this didn't happen on accident. Yeah. That chant does not start on accident in Erdogan's Turkey, right? Yeah. Um, they, Erdogan and his party know what they're doing when they whip up that kind of uh, nationalist uh, nationalist mobilization fervor. Yeah, right. And Erdogan has a lot of incentives to flex his muscles now. Um, And if that happens, you know, Israel's cooked like they they would have to stop their 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 bombing campaign and go back to the negotiating table. Um, even if it's just Iran, Syria, Hezbollah with sort of the the tacit support right. of of, you know, of Saudi and Turkey. Right. Even that would be difficult for Israel to manage because mm-hmm. their army is going to be locked down in Gaza, you know, or street by street, urban warfare, trying to clear this this warren of tunnels. Um, they're going to have a lot of difficulty keeping the West Bank under control. They're going to have a lot of difficulty dealing with Hezbollah coming in from the north. That's setting aside, you know, the, the elephant in the room, which is which is what does Turkey do about this? So mm. I think that it remains to be seen. Who knows when this episode will come out? Who knows what will have happened? But I, I think that Israel's room of maneuver is much, much more constrained than it has been in the past. And they are probably going to realize that in the coming days. Um We've already seen how hesitant they are to actually commit to this invasion of Gaza. Um, and when they do, uh, it's going to be it's not going to go well uh, for the Israeli army. Um, yeah. So and about the rally, it was also the 100th anniversary of the uh, the national the, the Turkey country. Um, and it was more than that. It was like millions of people in the street like I think today or yesterday that this was uh, the hundred anniversary, and it was all Palestinian flags. So wow. it was, uh, it was really, in terms of the display, it was the biggest in Middle East. Actually, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. But some, you know, obviously, some people say critiques say, "Oh, this was the, uh, you know, the the Ak parties." Uh, uh, propaganda or whatever but i mean it was the reality that the you know people showed up right so so yeah we don't turkey i mean jamal said it 
I wanted to say it, it said it better than I do, I think would play a very significant role. Um, and also one thing I wanted to add to context of everything else is like Israel is only, it's very small compared to all these countries we talked about. Right. You know, it's like population wise, even size is also sort of a flat land, which it's not really a help to them. Uh, you know, so it's, it's at risk at all times. Mm-hmm. It's so they they have to see what they can do, right? So, yeah, like like this is Israeli. In the past, Israel was aware of its geo strategic vulnerability, uh, and behaved in a militarily competent fashion. Um, Netanyahu has been so embroiled in his domestic political campaign to try to rewrite the Israeli quasi-constitution to allow him to, to control the judiciary right. um, that he's been from my understanding from talking to people in Israel is that he has been purging a lot of the more competent members of the Israeli security establishment because they've basically taken the wrong side in this in this ongoing um, constitutional crisis um, this has left Israel very very weakened um, compared to what it, where it's been in the past and I think that the the older generation of IDF heads and Mossad heads hmm. and, and all the various security um, forces within Israel were always conscious of their fundamental underlying vulnerability in a way that Netanyahu is not, um, and he, uh, yeah, he he's he's behaving very recklessly, and uh, you know, Mohammed is right to say that when it when it comes to Erdogan and, and the AK party in Turkey. They have always their bark has always been worse than their bite when it comes to relations with Israel. Um, they've always been very strident rhetorically in their support for the Palestinian cause while maintaining security cooperation with Israel. And, and they have a gas pipeline that that sends gas to Israel and so on and so forth. Um, but just the way that Erdogan is behaving, um, it. This is not the behavior of a politician who wants to misdirect and sweep things under the rug. This is the behavior of a politician who is gearing up for some sort of stunt, right? right. At least that's my reading of it. Yeah. Um, you you don't you don't allow a, a crowd of hundreds of thousands to a million people to start chanting, you know, Turkish military to Gaza unless you're not necessarily going to invade or send invade Israel or send the the army, but some some kind of thing seems to be on the offing but i guess we'll see in the coming weeks uh and months right um somebody please tell me there is there's like no no reason to worry about this becoming a regional war and i I think that's like maybe the one thing in this recording that i was like dear god please just like someone tell me this is not like going to spill over into regional conflict i mean it's not outside the realm of possibility which is the the scary thing right like Mm -hmm. it, it could happen um and I mean, to a certain extent, it's already like Hezbollah is already attacking northern Israel. Like that's happening. Yes. It just hasn't gone further than that. But um, if it does turn into a regional war, that would be, a, I think, the current American security umbrella in the Middle East is is totally rescrambled mm-hmm. if that actually happens. And it's not it's not a guarantee that it won't happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah. The other thing is, I mean, if it. Even if it happens, I don't think it would be a long war for Israel to realize, okay, they need to get in, get it together or something. Because I don't think yeah. they can handle a war with 
five different countries in the region. Oh, they can. Like got back in, weapons. Well, I mean, Yom Kippur War was a little different, right? <laughs> this one is right. Yes. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, this is a suicide, basically. If they if they try, and I, I don't think, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a conspiracy theory. I don't really know if they have a nuclear head bombs or if they do. I don't know how they would use it because they're kind of surrounded by all this country. I mean, they can. Right. Every plane that comes out, they can hit it. You know, how are they going to? Right. Well, you know, I, I think that fundamentally, if this does turn into a regional war, um, it, Israel will not be wiped out. Right. Right. Because it's a so de- deterrent. It has. An, um, it... Right. Well, you know, but 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 also I think that that's not really what most of the parties in the conflict are interested in. Right. Like Egypt and Saudi, if they you know, join this, they're not joining it to wipe out Israel. They've right. been allied to Israel for the last, you know, couple decades, right? They're mm-hmm. not going to change their policy that drastically on the drop of a hat. Um, it's either going to be some sort of, you know, enlarged two-state solution that the Israeli body politic is going to find very difficult to to, to stomach, or it's just going to be a single state, you know, with, with, uh, with free and fair elections. And that would Probably, if if a regional war kind of actually does break out, that sort of that sort of solution would start to look more and more appealing to American, you know, sort of Israel's American guarantors. I think because yeah. the alternative is just is just endless chaos in the oil markets, and and mm-hmm. you know, at, at a certain point, I don't want to think they want to make the OPEC members that mad. Right. <laughs> right. I don't think they want it because they don't want. So the thing with that, with the uh, wars and th- everything, it was it's like they don't want a whole block of people to, you know, or countries to rise against, you know, one na- one tiny nation that is like kind of being supported by also European states. Like, it right. kind of yeah, like the tail is wagging the dog now. Right. But if the stakes sort of ratchet up a couple notches, I think that the tail can't keep whacking the dog forever. Right. Like this at a a certain point, this is still the metropole and that is still the colony. And it's 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 going to the natural order of things is going to reassert itself uh, in in light of, of, of actual facts on the ground. So, yeah. But we'll see. I mean, I, I honestly have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. Israel yeah. stepping down, you know, kind of quiet, making a show of, of incursions into Gaza and then declaring victory and leaving, you know, without actually <laughs> accomplishing anything seems relatively plausible to me, um, as does Israel going in, getting bogged down, and then kind of the, the sort of surrounding countries slowly, you know, saber rattling and, you know, coordinating yeah yeah kind of i I do feel like israeli population also needs to wake up and smell the fucking coffee for fuck's sake you know they need to they need to come to realization that this project is not going to work right um because they did the protest for the you know anti Netanyahu and everything right but i mean this this is a deeper issue and they they are not there's no way and it's funny because like over yesterday i actually went to upstate and talked to this uh south african old lady she was you know obviously white south african old lady and she was saying like you don't really hear with the woke leftists they all talk about like even the liberal media always talk about like uh 
what was the black people feel during mm-hmm. South Africa? Mm-hmm. So nobody talks about how white people felt, right? right? And she, what she was saying was really interesting to me. It's like, it's like we didn't really know what was going on with apartheid. You know, we were kind of in a bubble, right? And then right. when we realized that, it was like, okay, that's, right. I guess, it's wrong. You know, whatever. <laughs> well, and it, it's wrong, and it's impossible, right? That's the yeah, big yeah. realization, right? And I, and I think this is from talking to you know leftists in Israel. Um, there's kind of this delusion in Israeli society that we can be a normal country, right? We, we, we can be a normal country, just like Europe. We can be just like Italy or something. We're normal. We're normal. And (laughs) there, I think Israel is freaking out so hard now in response to this latest incursion, because they're realizing that that dream is dead. You can't be a normal country. If you're a, if you're a settler colonial occupying power, it's not going to work. And I think that that is going to take a couple of years to percolate through the Israeli body body politic, but it's going to happen. Like I, I think that the existential terror of where the U.S. is not going to be around forever, and what's going to happen to us when it's gone as a as a deterrent uh, is is going to kick in at a certain point. Like this also, is also I wanted to point out this is not really related to Palestine, but how Hamas destroyed the Iranian opposition basically. It was just like, yeah. Say that again. Well, <laughs> right, right. Hamas yeah. destroyed who? Iranian opposition. Oh, really? You know, they were yeah. saying they were going through a revolution right? and everything. Yeah, right, and it right. was like, uh, you know, it was now is shambles. Nobody right. fucking nobody from the Iranian community right. I know gives a shit about the opposition anymore. Or right, right. They're not hopeful anymore because they have a weird stance on fucking Palestinian issue. Right. And so yeah, it's I mean, really interesting. It's, it's, yeah, that's a very good point. Like, just as Erdogan has a kind of incentive to become more and more bellicose on this issue, the Iranians have the Iranian government has a huge incentive to to actually commit to some sort of in, military intervention because that is an insurance policy against um, political unrest from pro democracy, pro Western liberal activists. Right? Like, that's it's the stars are kind of aligning for a major reorientation uh, on a lot of levels here. I do think, I do think that's, I think we're going to go through a phase of uh, like, again, like a new Arab spring. I don't know when that going to be. I, I kind of, I'm sensing that a little bit. It's like cooking yep. slowly. Right, right. Right. With Turkey, with Iran. I mean, these, I was in Istanbul like a month ago and it's like, People are pissed off with, with the the sure. Ak party and everything else. So oh, but pe- people in Istanbul are always pissed off with the Ak party. Oh like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. That's true. That's <laughs> true. But I mean, for as for for Iranian, I can speak like they're not the 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 Iranian government has zero backing, like very very few backing of the population right now. However, right, it's they also realizing because like the reason Iranian also. I mean, sorry, I'm going on too much. And you guys know you guys want to leave. But the reason why they uh, and this is going to the regional politics uh, became a pro-Palestine is because of the revolution, yeah. you know, because the before the Shah was and then even the Iranian Jews weren't really like they were all uh, there's a lot of Jews in Iran during the Shah and they weren't really like, you know, pro-Palestine and all the opposition's party that wanted to do the revolution in Iran were like super pro-Palestine, you know, wanted deliberation and everything. So naturally when the revolution happened, things go reverse. So became the revolution became about Palestine actually more than anything else. Like 
they always talk about the embassy, the U.S. embassy thing, but nobody talks about the closure of the Israel embassy in Tehran, which was a significant event, right? So it's important. Like I think that uh, um, it was important important for people in the region, and it's it's coming back to that. It seems like yeah. you know. Well, and you know the big one, the big one's Egypt. You know, um, mm. Sisi is way more pro-Israel than he had, he has any political reason to be, right? Mm. Simply because the Muslim Brotherhood was very pro-Palestine, and and he, you know, overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood, and so he adopted obviously the opposite stance. But Sisi's in a lot of trouble. Um, unlike the Iranians, um, his government is fundamentally inept, right? Like it, it can't even maintain an effective security apparatus. Um, it forget about economic, you know, sort of development, like Egypt's on the verge of a serious, um, you know, economic crisis right now. Um, and when that happens, uh, Sisi's in trouble, right? And I think he he's realizing that sitting out, you know, a- allowing Israel to, to have its way in Gaza is a huge political liability for him at a moment when he really has to be looking out for his skin. So if right. I, I would say that the optimistic view is like maybe they're going to be uh, like a wave of revolutions there again. I'm just saying, you know, I, I don't want to talk about the war part, but like the the I mean, revolution isn't any better than war, by the way, because there's going to be civil war or whatnot. But it seems like that's going to be the case for most of the countries in those regions, because like Arab Spring was like a 1905 to 1917 thing it seems like you know it's like it really didn't change it didn't changes that people wanted really didn't happen all these years right so it seems like it's going to be a phase that it's going to be changes throughout the the region you know so and then israel is going to be a big part of that yeah i i I agree i think we're uh, the underlying causes for the arab spring have not gone away and you could very easily see this being sort of the spark that lights the tinder all over again, right? And that's, I mean, that's something, if there are any sensible Middle East specialists in the State Department, which I think there are, right, yeah. left, um, they have to be trying to figure out how to communicate this to their to their idiot bosses because, yeah, this could all go real, real south. Brilliant. Well, I think uh, that's probably a great note to wrap it up on, guys. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us on this very difficult topic politically. Um, no doubt uh, there will still be a debate raging within the left about the appropriate uh, positions we should be trying to take on this conflict. It's a complicated conflict. It makes total sense that uh, that it should be difficult to discuss. I hope that in this recording we have uh, helped the listeners understand uh, a range of the stakes and the dynamics at play. Um, I want to stress that, you know, this episode has not been an official, uh, as it were, statement on behalf of Class Unity. Class Unity has its own internal discussions going on uh, about these matters, and we'll continue to have internal discussion about these matters. We do not have one singular opinion on it. Um, this episode represents uh, an effort to try to discuss some of the various perspectives, and uh, I hope we have uh, done so in a responsible and thoughtful manner. 
no doubt there will be people who have other points of view and those should be welcome. Uh, I appreciate again. Thank you so much, Jamal and Mamad for joining me. And I look forward to doing another episode with you both soon, maybe uh, on this issue again. Thank you. Thank you.